Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Kyle Serafin Show. Thanks so much for joining us today. We have someone that I'm really, really humbled to meet and talk to, someone that you're going to be very impressed with hearing his personal story, and someone coming off a fantastic personal victory, but moreover, a really big victory for this country, I think. We have Mark Hout with us. He's the co-founder and the president of The King's Men. He's an author, a lecturer, a radio host. He's an activist. He's a passionate Catholic, and he is a recently acquitted a victor over the Department of Justice on a really, really awful prosecution of the FACE Act, which is going to be 18 USC 248. Um, he's the father of, was it seven? Mark, is it seven, seven. kids? Seven, seven kids. Just a champion out there, um, bringing more people into the world and, and teaching it and raising them right. Um, I'm just going to welcome you on. Thanks so much for being on this show and thanks for being uh, willing to come and talk to us. Thanks, Kyle. Good to be with you. So I was talking to my daughter today about us having this conversation and she said, you know, dad, who, who are you talking to? My daughter's five. She's my oldest. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to talk to a man who got arrested by dad's old work. And she said, well, why would they do that? And I said, well, uh, he was protecting his son. And she said, from, from a bad kid. And I said, no, from a grown man. <laughs> and she said, that's disgusting. <laughs> Wow. So a five-year-old even knows that it's disgusting that somebody would come after a kid and get involved in it. We're going to uh, get into your whole story. I want to just start with, where did you grow up? Um, have you been a, a lifelong Catholic? Are you a cradle Catholic or are you a convert? And and kind of yeah. how did you end up here? Sure. I am a cradle Catholic and I grew up in Southeastern Pennsylvania uh, in Bucks County, PA, just outside of Philadelphia. And okay. uh, yeah, like I said, cradle Catholic, um, raised uh, youngest of four. Uh, private Catholic school education my whole life, played college football, uh, pursued professional football for a little while, and then uh, actually worked in um, juvenile justice for a while, and then uh, became a teacher and taught for about a year before I went into full-time ministry in the pro-life movement. What were you teaching, out of curiosity? Yeah, uh, I taught uh, high school French, middle school French. That was not what I would have guessed, but that, I like it. Uh, you seem like a pretty big guy. What did, what positions do you play when you play football? Uh, I was a free safety, uh, six foot, 215 pound guy. Okay. Um, when I saw the videos, actually, when I saw the first pictures of you with your family, which was beautiful, there was a whole, you know, there's obviously a lot of like promo pictures of you around the altar and things like that. And, and some of the different places that you've been doing ministry. And um you didn't look like the kind of guy that I was going to go and pick a fight with. I generally try to stay within my uh, my weight bracket, and you look like you got some meat on you, and that you're probably not a stranger to contact. It, it shocks me that this guy decided that he was going to go pick on a kid, but I guess that's what uh, bullies do, yeah. Yeah, you know, I I've seen this man for for twenty plus years. Um, he's not afraid to have a little banter. Um, in this case, you know, after probably 40 some encounters with him and my son uh, on this particular day, he was just more interested in uh in pushing uh and agitating and of course he violated the personal space of my son and then he started to harass my son verbally uh which of course i i directed him not to do that and continue sure. till he just wouldn't stop and then eventually uh the encounter you saw on the on the film or the video and and you guys weren't even near the clinic entrance, which is really amazing to me that they decided. I mean, that, that's how we know this was such a political persecution. And I'm just speaking as somebody who, if they had asked me to go put this case together, I'd look at it and I'd go, ah, no, it's not there. <laughs> like that's that's not there. You could just see it from looking at the at the uh, the camera angles we saw. 
So right, I'm shocked yeah. that they decided to go do it. I, I mean, you must have been shocked as well. Yeah, we were 50 feet from the entrance and uh, minding our own business. There were no women leaving the building at that time, no women even coming in. So uh, it was just a deliberate act on his part to provoke a father. And and it became about my rights as a father. Then it became about First Amendment rights at this point and even the FACE Act violation. Sure. No, I mean, that's I think that's number one. I, I made the same comments to people. I said, you know, if somebody came after my kid like that, like. I, I thought you were very uh, restrained. I thought you were, that was a very gentle way, especially if you had a, had a, had a history with this. I said, I don't know if the guy would have been breathing if you came up from, a, and the things that I heard were said, um, even in and of themselves, they crossed the line. They would have crossed the line with a lot of grownups, let alone, you know, your son who, sure. uh, how old was your son at the time? Yeah, he was 12 at the time. Uh, and, you know, we're a homeschool, homeschool family. So, yeah. um, you know, he's not used to hearing some of the vulgarity that he hears, but um Nonetheless, I'm, I'm able to process that for him. On this particular day, he was nervous. He was getting uncomfortable. I could tell he was uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, I, I had to protect his little heart. Yeah, that's your job. I mean, that's really, that's the only reason that we're out there in the world. I had a guy reach out to me on Twitter the other day and he said, you know, the world is so scary and so crazy that I'm worried about bringing children into it. And uh, I said, no, like go out there and find someone you love and start making some babies, man. Like that's the only reason that you have any skin in the game. Because if you're not part of the, if you're not part of the solution and looking down, like what's the point, right? I mean, what's the mm -hmm. purpose of, of trying to make this world better if it's, uh, if it's not for the next generation? I, I don't know what would motivate people. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you know, we're we're open to life. And, um, you know, we're very pro life. I take the kids down to, to the clinics, and uh, they've had exposure there. And as a homeschool dad, they, you know, that's a homeschool lesson that day, you know, fighting the culture war. So um, engaging in that battle, explaining to them, right in the neighborhood of Philadelphia, you know, there's a lot of things there that a, that a dad may not want to bring his son to, or even his other children, but um, there's a greater good in it. And I think my son got that. And of course, we're, we're in prayer, we know it's a spiritual battle. So it's a it's a prayerful experience and it's taking him right up against the enemy so he can see what it looks like. So he knows, uh, you know, the battles that he's going to have to fight when I'm gone. That's true. Uh, people can't see it, but Phil is nodding along and he also agrees. <laughs> so uh, um, so I guess the question is, do you, do you take one child at a time when you do this? You talk about it being a homeschool lesson. Um, there, there's obviously a lot going on on any given street in, in Philadelphia on any given time. Uh, is that something you want to be able to have, you know, direct access to to one at a time or you guys go in bulk or how does that work? Yeah, I, I've taken I've taken all seven of them uh, at, at different intervals, but that usually a couple of times, not not too often all of them because it's a lot to manage. But my son has a uh, choir rehearsal uh, every Wednesday and that's the Wednesday that I go down. So uh, it's just it's more of a logistical thing where, you know, he's got practice. So uh, we take him there and um, you know he's part of the Philadelphia Boys Choir, which is a renowned choir. So he is, in a sense, a choir boy. And, uh, you know, that's the, the poster child, you know, and he's a good kid. And, uh, you know, he he wouldn't have it any other way. He he wants to be there. It's a great it's a very special day for him and his dad. A lot of good time on the road. We're, we're in the car for two hours on the way down, two hours on the way back. So it's a special day for us. On on that particular day, what was the conversation like on the way back? Because I mean, had he seen you get physical with somebody before, like like that? No, I, I think that's the first time he's witnessed that. Um, certainly up close, like that. Uh, yeah, I think we we went right after that, Kyle, to to pray. Actually, actually, after after the man, I pushed him away from my son. Uh, we went and we had some prayer time. We, went, we did a holy hour. We actually grabbed some lunch at a holy hour. Then I got a text that the civil affairs department were at the facility. So I said, Mark, come on, we have to go back. And then uh, I went back and I, you know, knocked on the window of the police, police department's 
department's vehicle, civil affairs uh, division. And I just said, hey, here's my information. Here's my statement. And we stuck around for about 15, 20 minutes. And uh, and then I took him to practice. And then on the ride home, I think it was pretty much, uh, no, not, there wasn't much further thought on it, to be honest with you. I mean, that makes sense. It was kind of a non-incident other than, you know, something right. had to happen at that exact moment. You got to do what you got to do. But, um, you know, look like the gentleman walked up and walked away. Like you have a long history with him. I didn't know about that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he goes on to choir practice. You you kind of get to move on. You you had a uh, a pleasant exchange with the, uh, was it Philadelphia PD? Is that who was taking the complaint? It's from- civil affairs, plainclothes division. Sure. They, they handle the uh, First Amendment rights and the activism and the protests and demonstrations that are in the city. And they're great guys. They're they're there often. And uh, sure. you know, they took the information. He said, I don't think there's anything here, but he may want to press personal charges against you. I said, that's fine, which is exactly yeah. what he did. Okay. Um it was a long time afterwards that DOJ decided to come in and push the the FBI on. Did you have any inkling that there was a, an FBI case on you? They did they come and interview you first? Was that part of the experience? Um, so we had the private criminal complaint at, at, the, in, at the local municipal level, state level. Sure. And, uh, right. He, lo- he lost. It was dismissed. He didn't show up. Yeah. Uh, five days after this is April twenty seventh of twenty twenty two. I I get served by the DOJ. Uh, uh, at the sidewalk at the clinic. And uh, it was a target letter saying I was a target of a grand jury investigation. Uh, mm-hmm. At that point, they asked me to have my attorney uh, contact them, uh, which who was a former federal prosecutor with the uh, Thomas More Society. His name is Matt Heffron out mm-hmm. of Nebraska. And he contacted um, the, the AUSA in Philly and Eastern District there and said, uh, you have no case. My client's innocent. Plus, there's case law in your own district against it. But should you want to indict my client, He's a peaceful man. No need to bring an agent out to the house. We'll bring him in. Uh, no problem. And that was it. Um, they they didn't uh, really say anything at that point. They did ask for a proffer for me to come in and ask some questions. My former federal prosecutor said, absolutely not. They're just nice. for evidence. Uh, yeah. So so we didn't hear anything. August 2022, Kyle, I get a call from the same attorney and says, have you heard from the assistant U.S. attorney? I said, well, well no. Why would I have heard? He said, well, she won't return my phone calls. So when we got raided on Friday, September 23rd, that was the next time I even heard anything. So it had been about five months. It's so crazy too. And and you'd already made the the offer out there saying that you'd be happy to uh, to do a surrender, that you'd be happy to come in uh, should they ask, which would be very common for this sort of situation. Um, did they did they use a criminal complaint as a uh, as a device to come out there and and do the arrest warrant or did the judge actually authorize the arrest at your house like that? Do you know? Uh, so what I understand it was a bench warrant. Um, I, I when they came to my home at six forty five in the morning, uh, they banged on the door. Didn't even announce who they were, which I don't think is standard procedure. But they banged and opened the door, uh, or, or said to open the door rather. And I was up. Uh, putting a quiche in the oven and getting the kids ready for co-op. Uh, and they, real men eat quiche, right? That's right. So, that's true. <laughs> so wife and children are still asleep. It's dark o'clock. And um, I said, well, who is it? And they said, it's the, it's the FBI. And they banged again, open up the door. And I said, okay, stay calm. I have seven babies in here. Stay calm. I'm going to open up the door. So I was opening up the door, showed them my hands, of course. And I couldn't believe Five agents on the porch, 
about yeah. 15 marked and unmarked units surrounding the house on the yeah. side of my house. My daughter takes note of an agent at the back door in the sure. window. And then uh, all these long guns, M16s later, I, I understood that that's what they were, appointed at me, PA state troopers, about 10 of those and about another 12 federal agents, heavily armored vests, ballistic shields, ballistic helmets, and a battering ram. They were going to take down the door if I didn't open it. So I said, what are you doing here? And they said, well, you know why we're here. I said, actually, I really didn't because I hadn't heard from the AUSA. So I wasn't even thinking that. So I said, oh, you're here because I rescue babies. It just kind of clicked in my head. And then I looked at all of them. I said, you wouldn't be here. Good for you, by the way. Good for you. (laughs) I, I looked at all of them and I said, you wouldn't be here if the Trump administration was in the White House. And they didn't say anything. No one said anything. No one took me down. I wasn't shot. No one brought me to the ground. My wife comes down in her bathrobe and she's tying it up and she says, do you have a warrant for his arrest? And the lead agent, who I later learned was the lead agent, said, uh, well, we're taking him with or without a warrant, which is exactly what they said. And my wife said, we can't do that. Um, I knew they were going to take me into custody at that point. And um, I said, can I put some socks on? No. Can I put some clothes on? I had just underwear, T-shirt, flip-flops. No. Can I... Can I brush my teeth no can i put some deodorant on no pants no they let me take my rosary though oddly enough okay. uh eventually the lead agent when i was in the black suburban he ripped off the cover letter and uh, i don't even think they told me what i was being indicted for uh which i also think is uh procedure but um I don't think that was read to me, uh, frankly. So um, nonetheless, I was in custody, in cuffs, in front of my children, screaming at this point. My kids are screaming. Guns That's are right. over the threshold of my front door, pointed at my wife. And my children are in range of of the weapons because they're on the doorsteps there uh or the uh the steps going up to the second floor. So that's that was my morning. I was I was down at the federal building by 8 a.m. that day. So I'm I'm a father. Phil's a father. We're both shaking our heads about this. I mean, um, we've been on search warrants. I've been on plenty of them. And when you go on a search warrant, it's almost always this. You know, most of them that I've been to have been either drugs and gangs. We've been on some child trafficking stuff. You get through there, and you kind of think you're going after a righteous bad guy. Um, I don't know what the brief was that these guys got. What uh, you know, guys and gals came and knocked down your door with. But it's. It's kind of staggering that nobody threw the BS flag at any point in there and just said, you know, why don't we call him? Because that would be the normal move. Like, it's really easy to call people up. I love calling people up. I, I would call a guy up and say, hey, do you want to surrender? And they would say no. And I'd say, okay. And I'd hang up. And then I would do that for a couple of days and they'd call me and I'd hang up on them. And then finally, <laughs> you get to the point where they call and they go, hey, man, I'm not trying to run from you. And I go, good. When do you want to meet? You know, it was like, I, like I'll just treat them like a, like a yeah. high school girlfriend. And you just keep hanging up on them until they eventually want to call you back. And, uh, and I've done that before and it's really successful. I'm shocked they didn't say search warrant or arrest warrant when they were banging on the on the door or the wall. No, not 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 at all. My wife, you know, asked for it and they wouldn't give it. Uh, like I said, eventually they gave it. When I got in the car, I said, "Please tell me why did you need thirty people here?" And mm-hmm. they said, "Well, sir, the driver uh, from St. Louis said uh, we don't know anything about you, and uh, we come prepared for anything." I said, "I find that hard to believe that the FBI didn't know anything about me. You knew where to find me on Wednesday down in the city, but you didn't know That's anything right. about my home." So, um, you know, the lead agent didn't say a word, so I, he knew. So when we got down to the to the federal building, which is a hundred yards from. Independence Hall, they belly after I finger they fingerprinted me. They sure. belly actually, I should say this before I move into that. The the driver, we had such a good conversation on the way there. We're talking about homeschool. He wanted to be homeschool dad. And he he actually reaches out his hand. He says, uh, it was a real pleasure meeting you. This guy right. 
So after they fingerprint me and uh, they belly shackle me, they ankle shackle me, and then they cuff me to a, a, a table in a white room for about six hours. Uh, in that process, you know, I'm, I'm having the greatest prayer experience of my life. I'm entered fully into the moment with, with my Lord, and I'm at the mm-hmm. foot of Calvary. They'll come in every once in a while. We have the pretrial, like, are you a flight risk kind of thing going on? But man, I'm just totally surrendering my family, my kids, and and the whole situation. However, I'm kind of boggled why I'm being chained to a table uh, and shackled in my ankles that are bare. Of course, they wouldn't let me put socks on. So um, after six hours and and then manipulating, coercing me to give up information that I was not, they told me I didn't have, I didn't have to give up, but they were. They coerced my wife to do the same thing after I wouldn't uh, cooperate with them about giving the names of my siblings. I said, I have siblings in the area. I just wasn't comfortable giving them their names. Mm -hmm. Um, And so nonetheless, they they, they pursued that. Then I went down to the U.S. Marshals and I was treated like a dog there. I mean, I was I was a felon belly shackled i had to shimmy my feet the whole way down in the ankle shackles i don't know why that was necessary you yep. may know and then i was still cupped obviously in my hands which is totally now fine. this is before you went to um to your initial appearance is that what you were waiting on no i had my initial appearance before the judge via zoom just like we're doing this now and Unbelievable. Then they, they they had every intention to release me on my own recognizance which meant mm-hmm. i'm not a flight risk or i wasn't i wasn't a threat Sure. So um, this was their intention. They wanted to humiliate me, intimidate me, and scare me, and scare my family. I mean, it was so reckless and so dangerous what they did. Uh, it was an act of terror. My kids could have been shot. If one of my kids had grabbed one of our airsoft guns, he would have been shot. So um, we get down to the U.S. Marshals, and I'm finally released after about eight to ten hours. And uh, we're reunited at about four o'clock with the family. You said you you basically went straight into prayer while you were in this room. I know a lot of people have no idea how to approach that kind of stress, that sort of um, that sort of fear that would that would grasp you. I went through um, survival training, so I have kind of a, a different instinct. You know, you sort of you stay into a circle of things that you're willing to talk about, and you and you do the things that you're trained. Um, and and prayer is definitely part of it for most people because uh, if you don't have somewhere to go with it, you're you're just there with your own thoughts, which could be the worst thing in the world. Um, were you were you were you distracted by what was going on there were you you know worrying about what was going to happen to your family next or did you really just kind of zone into the you know with the rosary beads did you just zone in and just start uh, running through uh prayer in that moment and just know that god had you in his hands i mean how how much did you come in and out of being like i i can only imagine six hours sitting there and just wondering i know i'd be panicking about my wife and i'm trained yeah. Yeah. You know, you know I, I just had a piece the whole the whole time that was beyond understanding. And I I just knew that I I was unjustly suffering, which is you can handle that. If, you know, if you can see the causation of your actions and the effects of all that and you say, OK, but in this case, I just saw the lamb to the slaughter. And I was just I prayed every mystery of the rosary, prayed every devotional I could think of, thought of every saint that ever suffered persecution, and suffering. Of course, our Lord, I was totally at Calvary, as I said, felt his presence, felt my guardian angel. I, it was it was great solace. In fact, when they interrupted me to do the stuff they wanted to do, it was really a break. That was the only time where I lost a little bit of peace just because, you know, they were just trying to get me to give up information that I wasn't comfortable giving up. And, uh, you know, but 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 regardless, uh, no, I, I really um, 
look, I've been I've been in ministry for 20 years. So I yeah. knew, and this isn't the first time I dealt with law enforcement, certainly not in this way, but I knew that you know this was coming. And I knew that you fight evil long enough, you're gonna have evil push back on you. So I, I saw it as a gift. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. I, I it saw does. it as a blessing. Yeah. I, I was speaking to a, uh, a Catholic apologist who who writes books for a living, and he was telling me, he said, you know, if, if and when somebody comes through your door, you'll have a lot of things to offer up. And uh, so you can offer up all of that time and that frustration and, and that uh, experience of evil. And uh, and it sounds like you did that. Let's talk about what your wife told you afterwards, because that's got to be a black hole that she saw you disappear into. And mm-hmm. eight, 10 hours is is forever um, for a, a worried spouse. And then especially a spouse that's taking care of your, your seven children at the same time. What was her experience? You know, they took you away, I'm guessing, and put you in a suburban uh, before. And then they, what, continued to search the house? Or what was the next? No, they, they actually never came in the house, uh, even though really? some uh, some articles kind of said that. It, 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 just the guns were over the threshold. Uh, my wife, we came out to them. The children came to the doorstep uh, as I okay. could see them. Um, the crying, screaming, you know, terrorized, you know, don't take him. He's my best friend, my little youngest five-year-old. Um saying that but now she took them to co-op that day because she said you know being at home isn't going to be good for them i need to give them a normal day or as much of a normal day as possible uh and of course it would just they go stir crazy thinking about what's going on if they didn't do that so and then she was surrounded by great prayer she was she's a woman that's grew up in, in ministry herself so not that she she's experienced this before but she certainly understands the way of the cross and and the journey. So she had great faith through it all. Of course, she was trying to stay strong for the kids. And when we re- reunited, she she collapsed in my arms. Um, but uh, yeah, she was very strong. She's been a rock through the whole thing. Um, and I think that's the only way you can do things like this if you don't have a, a partner in the mm-hmm. in in facing down evil that that understands what the what's being asked of you and and why you have to do it that, you know, they don't necessarily, I don't think any of us really know why there's so much evil in the world or, or, or uh, what justifies it, you know, falling on us. But at the same time, when it does um, it's, a you know, I know that if you don't have that support that, that uh, it makes it twice as hard, especially when the idea, I'm sorry, I cut you off, Kyle. No, please. Yeah. How, how strong she is. So two weeks before the trial on January 6th, I know we'll get into the trial, but two weeks before the trial, um, or actually three weeks, I said, I went to my attorneys and I said, are they going to offer a plea agreement? And they said, no, the federal government doesn't offer pleas. you got to offer a plea. I said, well, I'm not going to offer a plea, a plea. So on January 6th at 5 p.m., it's a Friday, of all days, January 26th, uh, the uh, DOJ offers a plea agreement. And it comes okay. to my attorney and it says uh, uh, zero to six months, uh, no no probation uh, requested, and uh, plead guilty to the second count of the face act. So I said, well, I'm not going to take that. But I said, let me talk to my wife. And then my wife says, you're not going to take it because you're innocent. And two, if you took it, you wouldn't be allowed home. So that's the type of woman I'm married to. I and love said, it. I really do. You know, yeah. Thirdly, we need case law. So we're going to risk risk what we need to risk for the good of the movement. That's amazing. Uh, and it does show you, you know, like I said, if you don't have somebody who understands that. My wife had the same thoughts about uh, the COVID shots. I said, you know, is it worth me losing my job over this? Um, because we got a good job. And she said, she said, you can't get it because I won't let you. And I don't, it's, it's not an option. You're like, this is not a negotiation you're going to be having. You know what's right. And, and you know, it, like that's that's where your heart is. Then we're all on it. And so, 
you know, it does make it easier to stand uh, against the forces of evil and the forces of, of uh, whatever the secular sort of movement that's happening right now in this country and, and, and the politicization that's happening in DOJ when you got that, uh, that second person who's got your back, who's got just a hand there letting you know, like, no, no, yeah. you're not crazy. I always feel like there's a sanity check required too. I mean, did you ask yourself, Hey, is there any chance that I was uh, in the wrong here or do that kind of examination or, or did you just know that this was, this was your job as a dad and there's no question. Yeah, it was, it was dad instincts. I mean, of course there's always a replay of it, you know, afterwards and, you know, and you just kind of cross check it all. And then, you know, as I got home and talked to my wife about, it, she says, you did exactly what I would want you to do as a father. If you're going to take mm-hmm. my son into the city with you and he's going to get, he's in harm's way. I would mm-hmm. want you to protect him. So, you know, again, just affirming what I did, you know, you did what I would want you to do. You did what a good dad does. And uh, at that point, I think you just let it go because you're just, you're just in, you're just reacting at that point. It's not like a meditative, that's motive, right? If I had a motive to, to hurt this man, then of course I'm guilty. But I I, I reacted to him continually pursuing my son and harassing him. So, um, you know, that, and I think that was clear to the jury. Well, and like I said, I, it, it looked like restraint from my end of things, just knowing how, sure. what tempers look like. And, and like I said, the size that you're, you're a formidable guy, as far as just your overall size, you, you work with, uh, you, you know, your website says you work with thousands of men. You've been teaching men in your ministry for a long time. Do you talk about things like this before? I'm, I'm sure you do now. That's easy to add that into the repertoire, but is this something that you've talked about facing down, you know, as a father and, and, uh, and. Maybe the the Christian and and Catholic way of 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 being a defensive and and, and aggressive male and, and and when you have to be, sure, great question. Um, in fact, it's never been asked to me like that before, so that's interesting. Uh, our mission is leader, protector, provider. So we talk about you know engaging the cultural war. We talk to men about in- protecting women and children first, and then the common good. And so it's always been talked about in that way, and it's certainly something I talk about, but. During this trial, or this journey to the trial, I, I was not allowed to speak and really could not talk about the case because it would jeopardize potentially the, our case. Sure. So um, I really just started adding it in to the repertoire the last two weeks. So it's kind of raw for me, which is good in a way because I'm 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 putting it all together, right? Putting mm-hmm. the spiritual element of it all, the unitive element of the will of God and, and your will uh, coming together in the, in the magnificent moment of the journey. So, so that's going to continually grow, I think, as I talk to men. Um, but, but, you know, we, we've taught them combatives. It's a lot of things. We've taught them combatives. We've taught them survival training and things like that. We'll take them. And, and and it's all theory, right? It's all stuff that we're proposing. It was never actually played out like it did in my case. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's actually new material for me, I would say. But it's, yeah. And when I guess there's something... Um... You know, the, the military does a thing called stress inoculation. And in, if you've been teaching us for this long, the stress inoculation is that we give you a taste of stress in a controlled environment. We talk you through it. You go through the thought process of it. And then when you experience it, you, nobody uh, rises to the moment. They fall to the level of their of what they've considered. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think America fell so far backward in 2020 is that nobody had prepared where's the line in the sand? Do I know where it is? Do I know how many steps back I can backpedal before I have to plant? And so many people walked right over where their line would have been if they had time to think about it. And in your case, it, it it's exactly that. It's like, look, I'm willing to have somebody say a couple of things, but the minute you you start offending the the very gentle heart of my of my child, who's it's, it's my only purpose on this world, um, mm. 
you, you step into that space and and then whatever happens next, you don't have to plan it. You've already decided like you, you've snapped. You, we, we call it flipping the switch in the military. But once you flip the switch, you've just engaged whatever that program is. And your program is protect. Will right. you say again um, the, the roles that you said that you teach men uh, it's a little bit slower just so I can. Yeah, grasp sure. Better? Yeah, sure. So so in the years that I've been doing this, uh, we, we kind of define men and their roles as as leaders, protectors and providers. And so that's. Mm-hmm. That builds off the, the the supernatural role of priest, prophet, and king. You know, mm-hmm. the priest sacrifices; he lays his life down. He, a leader lays his life. He's a servant leader. Uh, you know, the king; he's he, he's he's looking out for the common good, those in his custody, and and you know he provides for them. And and of course, uh, you know, the the prophet; you know, he he's he's the voice of God. He's the mouthpiece of God, and so he's he's giving prophetic words and words that are, are going to lead to to uh, either salvation or or lead to damnation you know so there's a, a protective element of that too where he's like do this or else so mm-hmm. um but we really try to chunk it for men in a, a more uh, understandable way leader protector provider do you think that there's a lot of um men that don't have any experience with any of those roles and that that, that you're what you're proposing to them is new or is it something that they they feel deep down but they don't have a lot of training in no, that men are, they don't have any training in this, uh, at least catechetically, they don't mm-hmm. uh, from a religious, uh, you know, education standpoint, zero, because I had zero and I have 22 years of private Catholic education. So, right. and, and then of course, uh, you know, I got the football acumen, I got the athletic acumen, which gives you a, a d- great degree of, of uh, training in, in the sense of, you know, working towards something. But, but frankly, I, I, I can't translate defending my end zone to defending my son quite the same so it's really something that i've had to grow in to myself because i didn't have a father he passed away when i was 11 so a lot of men today are growing up with passive fathers fathers who are feminized emasculated in the culture and, and emasculated frankly by their spouses so um they really come to us not sure of themselves questioning themselves and certainly this in a in a in the false feminine world that's out there they would might even take pause hearing some of the words so we really have to you know help them understand and really grow into that into those roles and through the lens of christ and 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 help them see almost kind of defend it that way uh and then of course living it you know and so now i'm living it um you know it has more it has more tangible feel for men i'm sure yeah, no, definitely. I have to agree with that. You're 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 speaking my language. My dad's father actually passed when he was about eleven or twelve, and he told me when I was very young that the only thing that he dreamed of doing when he grew up, starting from the time he was you know an early teen, was being a father and being there for his children. My dad has six children. Uh, I'm one of six, so I'm I'm at the top end of the oldest ones, and uh, we've got three right now. But uh, so I, I feel you that there is a lot of that lacking, and and I was very fortunate that you know my father is 72 years old and still runs a chainsaw and has a, a you know kind of a physicality about him. We're always uh, you know shoveling things and and moving around, and he's you know he's a man who goes and works out in the gym every day at you know 72, um, which is not a thing that a lot of men are looking for in this culture. They're sitting behind a desk and they're typing and they've put the values in money and and whatnot, but not necessarily in those those very primal. Uh, masculine role. So I think it's interesting when you stepped in and you are now kind of representing, you said it's raw for the last couple of weeks, since you're just now getting able to talk about it. Sure. Um, were you working curriculum uh, that you were kind of thinking that was going to go into your, 
your uh, your seminars and your speeches and just using that as a way to to keep your mouth shut when you have to not talk to the media because it's I know it's very hard to to not speak when you know that there's things that are going on and people are saying things wrong and they're getting your story inaccurate right. and all that. Yeah, no, it took a lot of self-discipline. It took a lot of self-mastery to just bite my tongue. And even the trial is just an exercise in that because, you know, they're saying all sorts of things about you. And you, you really, you got a jury looking at you the whole time and you really need that. And it's not a poker face, but it's the only way I can explain it, right? You just, yep. you got to have almost this stoicism about yourself that not cold, but just you're not going to give it give away you know something that might make them turn on you so for me i I just had to just i entered into it through through prayer continual prayer but i my one of my priest friends dear priest friends married my wife and i he said i want you to journal about this and i hate journaling Mm -hmm. so i started journaling and i started seeing this as the lens uh or through the lens i should say of the way of the cross stations of Mm -hmm. the cross and so as i began with my arraignment on the September 27th to uh, leading up to the trial, it was, it was the, the 14 stations of the cross. And so for me, that was a great way to throw my thoughts down. So that's to your question of curricula or curriculum uh, that I would be developing. It would be, it would be coming from that directly mm-hmm. because those are my ruminations on, on what was going on, how I was feeling. And, uh, and, and I'm drawing on that. I find myself rereading it to, to kind of strengthen the message so that you can truly give the visceral experience to men, not just like, oh, this happened to me. No, I'll take you back and I'll take you exactly to how I was feeling. I think it's very impactful. I think it's important for people to hear. Uh, it's probably important for me to hear myself say it so I can live it and, and, and truly embrace it. Um, because it's one thing to have a thought. It's another thing to have that action, you know, where now you're putting it out there and people are are, are hearing it and then it becomes part of you. And so, um, you know, that's where we're at. Um, I think a very natural reaction to this. And I, and I read uh, some of the articles that were written from, you know, journalists or whatever they're called activists on both sides where you'll see, you know, it's a pro-life activist or an anti-abortion protester. You are framed in two very, very different lights. And we had some articles we pulled up that Phil might show, you know, Rolling Stones had one way to talk about it. And then, uh, you know, Fox News and, and the Catholic uh, you know, Life News Press and stuff would go the other way with it. And and in the meantime, you can't say anything about it. And I think a very natural reaction would be to be infuriated or at least be um, angry about the situation. Why me, number one? And then also, you know, all those things that are happening and you can't interact with them. Did you, uh, you know, how did you, because you sound very calm right now and you sound like you've digested this in a very good way. Do you do you reflect on, um, you know, taking anger as a, as one of the very normal human emotions and, and how you kind of redirected that? Was that part of your process at all? Hmm. Um. These are great questions, by the way, because no one really gets this deep. And this is good because you know, I have a temperament. We all have a temperament. It's God given. And so, you know, my temperament, I've been, I know my temperament. I know I know my uh, abilities to get excited and and lose temper if I if I get my buttons pushed. Um, in this case, you know, I look at it as righteous anger. I'm not really looking at it as like an angry man. If I, I pray for Bruce Love. I pray for all the collaborators of abortion. I pray for all those people. And I, and I have yep. been. Not because I'm in this situation, because I always do. And yeah. um, I know they're wounded. I know that they're they're hurting. And and so, you know, there's a part of me that even hurts that, you know, I had to do that to Mr. Love. Uh, you know, like, I, I, there's a part of me that just 
doesn't want to do that to him, but know that I had no choice in, 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 in a sense as a dad. So, yep. you know, I, I do reflect on that. And I, and I say, you know, if I meet him, I, I would talk to him and tell him how much, uh, you know, God loves him. And I, nothing would change for me. Um, so that's truly where my heart is when it approaches the evil of abortion. When we go to, to confront evil, you really need to be disposed properly. And I think this goes to temperament. When I'm there, you know, I'm fasting. Okay. I'm always fasting when I'm there and I'm always praying when I'm there and I'm always binding demons and, and, and the evil that is there. So mm -hmm. I know I'm in this spiritual battle and I know I'm putting on the armor of God. And I know when it comes after me that, that, that there needs to be Holy spirit encapsulating it. And so for me, um, all of this has been a gift and all of this happening to me and my family has been a blessing. I see God's hand in it from the beginning to, to this conversation, I see the true grace in it all, that there's grace in it for me. Now, in the in the, in the articles, you'll see me as a hero or a, a, a villain. And mm -hmm. truth be told, I'm somewhere in between, right? I'm not, I'm not quite the villain, of course. And I'm not the saint everyone wants to make me out to be. I'm a sinner. But um, you know, I, I know, I know that I'm on the journey. And um, and and so this is a part of it. And so this is how I I I become holier by going to the abortion mill. It's uh, and you were saying that when you're there and when you say that you're in, on the streets in front of these clinics, um, do you go to more than one clinic or is it just the one that you're? Yeah, I, I'll go. I'll go to multiple clinics. This one I like the most because I can walk right up with the girls to the to the very door, and mm -hmm. I like being able to get that close and have that conversation. But it's one. It's the one I prefer to be at. But I've been to all six of them that are in the area uh, throughout the last twenty years. Do you do you see women turn away and uh, and receive what you're saying and and make a different choice than what they came there to do? Does that happen? Oh, all the time. It's uh, it's it's wonderful. I mean, it, it brings us to the point where you see, wow, I can be used by God as mm -hmm. a broken, fallible instrument to help save one of His children and to hold these babies in my own home have my kids hold them uh, to be invited to their, their parties and their, their family's growth as a result of choosing life. It's just a, a tremendous gift to me. And um, so I would say, you know, in the last 20 years has been uh, over, probably over a hundred babies that have been saved, you know, through my direct and indirect involvement. That's incredible. So, and, and this is kind of a, a it's almost an embarrassing disclosure because my wife, first of all, my wife grew up in Brooklyn as an atheist. And so I'll just kind of give you kind of a little bit of our family background. Um, had no religion, no interest in religion growing up and would have been, you know, a, a diehard leftist and and certainly a, a pro-abortion type um, until, until she became a mother. And, and I didn't really think about it that much at all. It wasn't a thing that was much on my radar, but honestly, the minute that we first had our, our oldest daughter, so that's about six years now, um, it changed the way that we looked at the world in a big way, and it has radically changed my wife's heart. She uh, she was baptized at Easter last year, and uh, and became a Catholic. And it's one of those really kind of wild transformations you watch, where you know my wife watches videos about what happens during abortions now, and she she sobs. Um, and I can always tell what she's been. I'm like, why do you do that to yourself? And she said, I have to know. I have to know what I thought I was supporting before. And she does it almost as a penance to just really absorb that information. And I think that a lot of people would assume that what goes on and, and, and I've, I've been to the March for life in, I think 19, is that when Trump spoke? Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? right. 
so my wife and I went there and I, and I'm not a big fan of crowds. I don't know if you know a lot of guys who have spent time in the military and, and then uh, worked in law enforcement, but crowds are not really a thing we're into. And I, it was the only place I felt like if my two children had run off and wandered around, someone would have brought them back and it would have been fine. It was such a special group of people. And there's what, 500,000 people that come and walk sure. in there um, and have been forever. And so it was kind of amazing to me to see that sort of thing and realize what this, mo this movement is really about. And it wasn't a movement that I was familiar with until then. My wife actually made me take leave and take the day off so that I could go and walk there. And as we did it, it, it occurred to me that so many people have this misconception that you're out there either shaming or heckling women who are making probably the worst decision of their lives, many of whom will never live it down uh, to themselves. And, and the reality of it is something very, very different. And it's, it's offering an alternative. And, and then it sounds like also support, a network of support. Can you talk a little bit about you know, what the real experience is and what, what is really being offered there, not as opposed to maybe just shaming people down. Sure. Well, shame, you know, no one's ever been converted through shame. Agreed. Uh, or, or, or confrontation that, that is condemning. I mean, uh, shame's part of the journey, which, you know, shame is, 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 is the guilt element of, of what I did something wrong and, you know, the shame before God, if you will, but no one really gets anywhere with shame at the abortion mill. We go there and with a compassionate heart, loving heart, a prayerful spirit. And some of us sidewalk counsel, which was what I was doing. Um, I, I feel called to do that and step into the gap and, and engage conversation. Some people don't, they just pray for presence. And then others, you know, they, they, uh, you know, they're just, um, they're, they're there to hold a sign. You know, they may just want to hold a sign and and be that silent witness as well. But for me, I like to I like to engage the women. It's it offers me a chance to to use my gifting to to help them. Now we're there before they go in. We're there while they're in there praying for them, and we're there for them when they come out. So, you know, we're there whether they have an abortion or not. You know, if uh -huh. they had an abortion, we're going to offer them healing. Uh, we're going to encourage them to name their baby. We're going to encourage them to pray to their child. You know, yeah, those are hard things to hear maybe after you come out, but they're necessary to hear because they need to know that that child is is known and it's a child known to God. Um, yeah. And that might be a seed that's planted that maybe they'll remember one day but, or would take them to a pregnancy resource center if they if they don't go in they have the courage not to go in or they come out because they can't go through with it we'll go take them to a pregnancy resource center so the movement has a lot to offer certainly we're talking 11th hour offerings if a girl takes a plant uh, abortion pill we can still help her 24 to 48 hours afterwards if she changes her mind so mm -hmm. we've 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 offered a lot to them when they're in that moment now we're certainly there way in advance with our hotlines with our counselors with our ultrasound machines our mobile van units you know we got a lot of stuff that we can do in even, even in, in advance you know mothers mm -hmm. homes maternity homes um i think everyone has that spirit when they're there I got two questions and they're not related. So I'm going to try to remember to come back to the second one. Uh, the first one that I'm most curious, how do you open up that conversation? You're walking on the sidewalk. You see someone coming up. Obviously, you can tell when women are walking up. So that kind of gives you an idea. And the age bracket's got to be a, a, a clue. How do you initiate that conversation? And and you know what's the gamut of, of how well it goes or maybe how bad it goes? Yeah, you've been there for 20 years. You get You get pretty good at identifying who's there to go in and who's there to not. Mm -hmm. I'd say nine out of 10 women, I can guess who's going in. Now, I don't always get the nine out of 10 that they're there for an abortion because Planned Parenthood offers a lot of things other than abortion. But you can kind of get a sense for the ones that are, the way they're dressed, uh, they're, they're dressed a certain way. Um, 
there's support sometimes surrounding them when they come in. Mm -hmm. There's a hesitation in their face. So you can pretty much know who's going in there for a procedure, a surgical procedure or some, something else, uh -huh. uh, the chemical abortion. So, so the way I approach it, Kyle, is I, I, I introduce myself. I said, hi, my name's Mark, right? Like how else would you introduce yourself to somebody? Not some yeah. stranger. Don't kill your baby. Like that would be the worst thing you could say, right? You right. don't know about them. Hi, my name's Mark. Um, I have some free literature here for you. Um, I'm sorry you had to come here today. You know, these are some of the things that I might say to begin that conversation. Mm -hmm. And you, I'm sure you get the whole gamut from someone who's willing to talk to you because they're polite and they're a nice person or someone who's going to tell you to, to go pound sand and, and something awful. And does yeah, it, get, sure. does so, it get, so, gets contentious, look, I'm sure. Look, sometimes they don't want to talk to you. Sometimes they're there for their second and third, fourth abortion. So they've been down this road before. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're prepped in advance by uh, the abortion industry to know that we're there. That's why I like to greet them way before they get to the building. So if I identify someone that's coming, I'm going to get to them as quickly as possible, maybe 100 feet away from the building. So I have some time to build a little bit of rapport with them. And if there's a dude, a father walking with them, you better believe I'm going to be in his ear speaking to him man to man versus talking to the girl, because that's where I can really speak into the heart of, of the situation, because I'm a man. And, and I'm also a father, so I can talk to him like a father. Um, yeah. So, so in that regard, you know, we, you really have to be, you got to be kind of shrewd about it. You really have to see. And if they tell you, Hey, I'm not interested, then you back off. You, you cannot force this. Um, yeah. you, you know, it's just not going to go well if you do. And, um, and if she's asked you to leave her alone, you leave her alone. Um, but if she doesn't say anything, you continue to press it a little bit. Why? Cause she's thinking about it. She's hearing these things. I'll say, you're already a mother to your child. You're already a father to your child. They don't think mm -hmm. that, you know, they think I want to get rid of what's inside me. Um, hey, one more day. Give it one more day. Let's talk. Let me take you over and get you a cup of coffee. Right. So I can get some food in them. They can't have the abortion anyway. So I'll get I'll do whatever I can to get some food in them, you know, or get something in their body. Um, so anyhow, that's kind of what I do. I mean, and this is uh, th those are all sales techniques, and, and I did um, corporate sales for a while. But that's what that is: you're sizing up a sale, you're you're trying to get a small win. You know, you talk about get some food in that that bumps it down the line just a little bit, and just a little bit more time. Um, you're framing the uh, the situation differently than maybe they were they were thinking about it. Do you think that uh, technology, the way that it's changed, and, and if you've been doing this 20 years, then you know that technology has trained, changed dramatically. The ability to hear fetal heart tones at, you know, what, seven weeks now? Um, that was a game changer for me as a dad, as a new dad. And and now it's just, you know, they've got the 3D ultrasounds where you can see, you know, the face of your child over there. And you can tell this is a person. There's no sure. question in anybody's mind who looks at it. You can't decide otherwise. Now, you could decide as a person that you don't want to be in your life. That's a different animal. But I don't think anybody can make the same decisions that they did probably 20 years ago um, You know, when I was just coming out of high school. That wasn't a thing that people could look at. Does that play into your, your um, do you th does that play into it differently now, I would say, like I compared think, to what you saw? Yeah, I think every woman that goes in there knows they're killing their, their own child. I think they're not deceived. It's not like a clump of cells uh, to them. That was the old line in the 70s mm -hmm. and 80s, a clump of right. cells. But um, no, I, I think with the technology, all know that it's it's a, a, a baby. And, and we have the fetal models there. And, you know, we'll certainly show them if a girl is somehow confused. But um, no, it's an inconvenience is what it is. This is what this is what they know. And this is their solution to it. So there's really no question that women are like, 
confused like it's a blob of tissue or something there that doesn't exist anymore um let's let's dig back into the trial a little bit i i just wanted to know more about your your kind of your ministry on the street there i think it's really relevant and i think it's important for people to understand a lot of people have never seen this i mean and it is a contentious issue it's it's also kind of a contentious moment in people's lives i it's amazing that you choose to engage in that to me uh on such a regular basis because i think that's that's um you know getting out in people's faces that way is uh it's a challenge and it probably is something that keeps a lot of people from doing it just knowing because they, they don't want to engage human beings the same way but i want to dive into the trial the uh you, you had evidence presented against you how did the uh, how did the doj case even work other than like there was video of it and i assume they brought up mr love sure so so we had an incredible defense team thomas moore society is the calvary for anyone dealing with something like this, uh, we got the best attorney in Philadelphia, Brian McMonagall, tremendous criminal defense attorney. Um, he defended Bill Cosby and got a, him a hung jury. So he's a talented, talented man. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, that was a great team. Uh, the the government put on a, a strong argument, right, as they will, right? They had the number one guy for for the FACE Act, the guy that writes the manual for the FACE Act and in the second chair. And then they had their lead uh, prosecutor who was very talented herself. And, um, you know, of course, they they make the case. And uh, my own daughter was in tears here in here in the case. So they put on the uh, the CEO of Southeastern Pennsylvania, uh, Planned Parenthood. They had uh, Bruce Love, of course, as you mentioned. They had another woman who was there on the, her first day volunteering the day of the incident, another escort. They had the security detail at the time, the head security guy who looked at the tapes, uh, deleted tapes that would have helped our case. Uh, and then they had uh, two, uh, two eyewitnesses that were in the community that didn't know anybody but had had witnessed the the incident okay and how did you feel i mean i i read an article that said your wife said we basically surrendered to god and said we're doing the right thing so we're we put ourselves into into his hands and you know we know that we hope that it'll come out right or we believe that it will but but you never know you're looking at 12 strangers uh, in a place that is not necessarily favorable to um to a christian father defending his his son um right. that that may be you know, something against the, the beliefs of a jury like that. It's got to be, you know, Philly's a pretty left-leaning area, right? So, yeah, well said. Yeah, the, the 65 <laughs> jurors that were, were the pool, uh, most of them were volunteers of Planned Parenthood, and most of them were donors to Planned Parenthood. So when we wow. selected the jury, it was a little disheartening. Tuesday the 24th was a tough day. Um, you know, we took the best shot that we could, and we got 10 strikes. They had seven, six, and um or seven and um yeah we i don't know at the end of the day it, it was tough it was a hard it was a hard day to select the jury of course i watched the whole thing i hear everything so my heart is kind of like man this could go either way this is 50 yeah. and um when they marched out i mean it, it was unanimously acquitting you which is the way that it's got to go down they didn't hang the jury and they didn't come back out of the you're you're done with this this case now um Right before they they let it go, did you have a, a moment of, of prayer? Were you what, what was your thoughts as you're sitting in the chair, or you, they ask you to stand up and and face the music that's going to be read out? Right. So you know, I had tremendous peace throughout the whole trial. Um, you know, peace, peace beyond understanding. Um, you know, there was a ton of prayer. You know, a lot of rosaries were being said. Myself, the daily readings, you know, were very consoling to me. A lot of hymns being sung in the jury or outside the jury in the hallway. And I'm sure the jury could hear it. Um, 
But when it came time for that that moment of truth, now we had two jurors that had to be removed. One was removed the first day because he had an economic hardship. So the alternate was put in. Then they were deadlocked on Friday. The trial went the Tuesday to Friday on the 27th. They were deadlocked after two and a half hours. The judge said, come back on Monday morning, the 30th of January two weeks from tomorrow and, and, and uh, were they they weren't sequestered during that time obviously no, they, they were out to just wa- they're walking yeah. around reading media looking at media they certainly they, they're told not to but they certainly could have sure. so by the time we left on friday we thought most of the jurors were with us but you just don't know so when we got there on monday the jury had passed a note to the judge judge gerald pappert who was phenomenal um and they said we have a problem one of the jurors is being extremely obstinate and uh, targeting other jurors and so the judge interviewed each juror and we watched them go back into his personal chambers and and get information well one guy was removed and then they brought the other alternate and they we had to call him he was out in lancaster or wherever he lived and uh they had to call him in so we're all waiting for him to come as soon as he gets there they um, they go into deliber- deliberation and within an hour the, they have a verdict and that was unanimous wow. verdict at 3 p.m. in the afternoon Eastern time so um, no no coincidence there and so as they they asked me I actually sat I thought you have to stand but they said you know stay seated first count I thought I was going to get convicted on the second count um, uh-huh. there's three elements to the first count four four elements to the to the to the second count first count Mr Mark Hauck, we find the defendant not guilty my hands were sweating I was I was nervous for the first time and then I truly felt in my heart that you know that God was going to give me a, a guilty verdict uh I don't know maybe lack of trust on my part I just knew whatever was going to happen it was going to be for the best and I was preparing my heart for that and I said even if I go to prison it's for the best that's right, right. it'll be what God wants because I knew I was in his will I knew I was in his will mm-hmm. I didn't have to doubt that and when they said not guilty I, I was relieved I couldn't believe it I was like wow you know, I'm, I, I was blown away. I was preparing my family, prepare your hearts because the, you can't argue with the video. Um, you know, the, I pushed them, right? I mean, it's simple assault, right? At least, at right. the very least. But it has to be motive. And that was the hardest part for the jury, to, I think, to wrestle with, or the easiest for them to wrestle with. Well, and I, I hope that they they looked at it and saw the same thing that I saw, which was restraint, which is to say that you know, when, in in light of the evidence, in light of what uh, what was said in, the, in that moment, and the fact that you're a human being and a father, um, it, it would be really hard to fault those sort of actions, and it would have been hard to fault more action than than what you went along with. Um, and so, I, I I think I gave an interview right afterwards because I was being asked about it. Obviously, the FBI being involved in your case, and I, I went publicly, you know, and I'm speaking to people like Seb Gorka, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "I'm not sure if that guy would have been breathing, uh, <laughs> if, you know, b- because I'm I know my capacity for violence. I spent a lot of time training on it, you know, and and you know what your capability for physicality is as well. And I'm glad that you were restrained, but uh, like I said, I, I could tell you were a good sized guy just by looking at the pictures. And I thought, man, what a what an interesting choice for someone to make to try to provoke someone that is so much, you know, so much more of a physical danger to them. But it, it is a a strange part of our culture right now. And we talked about it just earlier about men growing up with sort of feminization and an inability to grasp like what the core job of of men in this world is. It's always been known. I mean, men have always been the ones who have been outside of the village. Like I always told people ask me why I enlisted. I said, well, because I did this reflection in my heart and I thought. 
if it was 10,000 years ago, I would have been laying, you know, covered in Buffalo turds waiting on the Buffalo with like my two buddies and a spear. Like that would have been my job, right? Like that's what men did. They hunted, they provided, they protected. And, um, for some reason it's, we're in a world that's so divorced from physical consequences right now. And I wonder if that's why people like, uh, like Mr. Love decided that that was the thing he could engage in. And mm. that was even, even remotely appropriate. Mm. Um, yeah. Have you, have you tried to, thing. yeah, good. Have you, have you put yourself in his spot and tried to figure out what, you know, what goes on in that mind with the years that you've been interacting? Yeah. You know, again, I, I've, I've seen him for 20 years. I've talked to him for 20 years. He's been vulgar. He's been even worse, uh, but he just, he would not let it go. He said on the stand that he's never been in any physical altercation in his life. Um, frankly, it's probably only the second or third time I ever had a physical altercation with uh, somebody who wasn't uh my brother, uh, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, uh, he, you know, he was very surprised by it. And, um, you know, I, I guess he, I guess he didn't think it would come, it would happen. Yeah. It's bizarre. I, I do feel like there's something about just being, uh, if you make it to the age of 25 as a, as a male and you haven't been punched in the nose once, even if it's by a brother and I, and I you know, I've had a lip split open by a brother, you know, we, I got four of them. So it, it's one of those very natural things. If you haven't had the consequences of your actions sort of meted out upon you in a, in a way that you could walk away and remember maybe a scar somewhere that doesn't bother you. Uh, it, it, it seems like we more and more have that, uh, that disconnection in our physical culture. And it's led to just some really vile behavior. I'm sure you guys were subject to some online hate and, and uh, you know, people from the other side that were, you know, despising you just for doing the thing that I think every dad should do. Yeah. There was some, there was some initial response there from the other side, if you will. And we even got it after the verdict too. We got, you know, some, some requests for, for uh you know try that when i'm there kind of thing you know from a, someone who's an, an escort so you know we just yeah. we just ignore them and uh some are kind of funny actually some of the things that were said you had to kind of chuckle like that someone actually wasted the time to send you some nonsense but uh you got to see some humor in it uh or else you'll you'll go crazy or despair or, or get really nervous is it all uh online written or are you guys catching phone calls or anything like that i mean do you have i'm you have a yeah. home, you know, line that's catching that where your kids are going to have to hear a voicemail that's awful, or yeah, well, are you we, shielded? We, you've been around the block, brother. You you know the routine. Uh, yeah, we got. I got the voicemail on my personal phone. You know, with the crazy messages. Uh, we don't have an answering machine in the home, so thankfully, it's just cell phones, which works. Uh, yep. But yeah, the text message, uh, voicemail, and email have been the main source of connection. Does it surprise you how how vile people can be, or is it just just one more facet in this war that you know that you're involved in? Well, we, you know, we're when we're in the city uh, in Philadelphia, 13th and Locust, as like I said, the neighborhood. Uh, I've seen the worst of behavior. I've been spit upon. I've been pushed. I've been pushed by security guards there. Uh, you know, I, I I've had awful, grotesque things said to me when I've been there by myself. So I've seen the worst in humanity. Um, so no, it doesn't surprise me. I wish it did. No, I think that's the that's the part about being in the, in the spiritual war that the physicality of it shut probably doesn't surprise anybody anymore. But it is, I don't know. There's there's depths of, of humanity that I think every once in a while they will come find something new. Let's talk about something a little bit more positive. I know Phil's gonna probably nod off to sleep over there because he's on the east coast. He's on the wrong side of the the country. Um, the Kingsmen. Where do you guys put on your seminars? Uh, it says you've traveled all over the world. Uh, give me kind of a, give me kind of a, a, a tour guide of where you've been and and what you've seen and and 
maybe where things are different or or where your message is most well received? Sure. So, you know, at the heart of what we do are small men's groups, and we started them in the northeast part of the country. And then, of course, it grew as we wrote a handbook to help men. And uh, we have a footprint kind of in the United States, you know, all around the country. Uh, and, and that's great. And then we have guys in Poland, Switzerland, uh, you know, involved doing small men's groups. And then we have guys in at military bases in Korea, and you have one in Kabul, Afghanistan. So, um, you know, we've had that as our heartbeat of what we do. And then we funnel a lot of guys into our small men's groups through a retreat offering, our retreat programs, outdoor experiential retreats, and then even healing retreats, healing retreats for for men who kind of really have these deep wounds from their youth, which could be bullying or, or, or father wounds, or, or maybe they've had an abortion or something, or, or just struggling with sin. So we did that Um as another funnel to what we do. And then, and then we do that for vets as well, first responders, because uh, they have uh, a unique wound there. And then finally, it's a call to action piece of what we do, inviting men to engage in noble battles, uh, like going to the abortion mill, defending traditional marriage and fighting the evil of pornography. What is, yeah, tell me a little more about the noble battles. I think that's kind of something that uh, people who listen to me probably get a, probably have a good sense of what that, um, you know, or it would be a, that would appeal to them, but yeah. um, you talk about very specifically pornography, abortion. What was the other one? Homosexuality yeah, in our culture. Yeah. Tradi- okay. So traditional marriage. marriage. So yeah. so how do you how do you approach something like that? Because uh, obviously the the political culture right now uh, screams against that that you should even engage. It's it's a faux pas. It puts you out of the polite conversation. I think in many on many tables. Um, sure. definitely on the East coast and definitely on the West coast, you're, you're probably safer in the, in the Midwest, but, yeah. but people are, are, are scared to engage in that. So what, what kind of things do you teach people that they can, um, where they enter sure. that? Yeah. I, I think, you know, being an activist, uh, you know, I, I know a little bit about first amendment rights. And so fighting the evil of pornography was, was what we initially did as an apostolate of ministry. And we would just do what we do at pro-life vigils and just go and pray in front of sexually oriented businesses. And so we would bring men with us and we, we've been a part of the closing of 23 of them because, you know, we just expose the light or the evil to the light rather, and expose all of the, the lies that the evil one does in setting a business there. So um, that's been a great success story. And it's it's out of men's comfort zone for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we would encourage them to join us and then, you know, see the joy in that for themselves and the gift for them. And, and even being on the offensive with an issue that is so much commonplace for men today dealing with lust and sins of the flesh um it was very it was a it was something that men were intrigued by although it definitely did label us for a number of years as the porn fighters we got away from it um it was what it was you know someone had to do it so um you know we were sued in federal court so you know we we dealt with federal courts before we won of course we always win it's just we got to spend money to win sometimes right. or, or we get the Alliance defending freedom or Thomas More society. Um, and of course, traditional, traditional marriage has been something we've always stood for helping men who struggle with same sex attraction, but also not being afraid to, 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 to call out, you know, what God created uh, for man and woman and, 
boy, that'll make a lot of enemies. That'll get you. That'll get you on someone's hate list real quick. Uh, but you know, when uh, President Obama lit up the White House in, in rainbow colors, we went down there and we did a whole outreach right in front of the White House lawn. And you know, we were just right in front there, saying after Obergefell and Hodges, uh, you know, we, no, this is this is not uh, what God created. This is not good for society. It's not good for a child. So we've been very vocal about those things. And of course, abortion has been always at the heart of all of it, right? Because right. If you get that wrong, no wonder everything else is the way it is. So so we've always been engaged in that battle. We saw the porn fight as kind of, you know, foundational to the abortion problem because it was the hypersexualized culture. And so we were trying to go to the root of the problem. Yet we were still there and still going 11th hour to the clinics and praying and um and then just seeing the culture changing the you know the 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 drag queen libraries and the culture changing throughout the last 20 years my gosh that we weren't talking about gen- transgender issues when i began in 04 no. 03 and but now it's just now part of the rhetoric you know we have to be able to defend that too so you know we're, we're not afraid to talk about these things these things are hard to talk about men really don't know what to say uh, you know, they're, they don't really know biblically how to defend it. Um, so we just try to give men permission to, um, to kind of just stand up against this stuff. And we try to link them to what we're doing so they don't feel alone in it. Mm-hmm. There, I think there's probably two takes on what we're looking at in the, uh, in the culture war as it stands right now. And one of those is that we're losing and that there is an awful lot of evil and it's more of it. But the other possibility is, is that these are last gasps of, of a failing um, attempt to really capture people's hearts. And they look you know, ridiculous on their face. The, the drag queen story hour thing, like you say, it didn't exist when I was, when I was uh, uh, in my 20s. That was not a thing that I ever heard of. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they want to push this agenda like it's a real, like it's a real uh, necessary part of our culture. And it seems absurd and do you feel like that we're losing ground or that this is the last gap is it or is it somewhere in between and we're just hoping hoping on one or the other yeah you know I, i've been saying a lot with with some of the talks i've been given since the the trial uh ended you know that uh saint peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion hope looking for someone to devour right and so when we think of an old african proverb which says a roaring lion catches no prey uh no or no game we really have to see the devil as as a wounded animal and that's what a roaring lion is it's a wounded animal when when lions are healthy they're quiet they don't roar um the lionesses they they hunt in stealth mode and so you know a healthy lion is not going to do that if it wants to catch its prey so we know the devil's wounded we know that he roars because it's all he can do and all the animals flee when they hear the roaring lion because he's wounded and they'll just get out of his way and, and won't. But the only thing that the devil catches and the, the lion will catch is, is the dead person, the spiritually dead. And so that's what the devil will gra- gather up are the people who aren't praying, the people who aren't listening to God, the people who aren't going to church, uh, the people who are buying into the lie of of the culture, the woke culture. Um, that's who the devil is is going to is going to devour. So I think faithful people need to know that, and they need to know that you have nothing to fear. You know, we we've been we lost a lot of pro lifers in Philadelphia coming coming out to the clinics after I got arrested. It's exactly mm-hmm. what they wanted to have happen. They were scared. Uh, yeah. And I imagine that happened around the rest of the country too. But now sure. we, 
we're, we're trying to encourage them. Don't be afraid. Like you got the case law. Good. Keep going. But don't don't let what happened to me prevent you from fulfilling the will of God in your life. So um, I think that's where men struggle. You know, they, they yeah. just need to step out and have that courage. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, courage begets courage and one step, you know, follows another. Did you have any contact with the others that were, there were other people that were arrested. You were the first of of several during that sort of wave that went on um, of of the DOJ deciding to, to push a, a sort of a ridiculous position. Um, but did you have any contact with any of them? Did you, or did, are, are they going to be relying on your case law now that you've, that it's been established, you think? Good question. Yeah. You know, Father Fidelis, he got convicted uh, up in New York and his trial uh, sentencing is pending. I have not had contact. I know people who know him. Uh, Paul Vaughn. I, I, I didn't realize that. Well, who is this again? Yeah. Father Fidelis, he's, he was arrested uh, up in New York. He's a CFR, uh, Father Benedict Rochelle's order. Uh, okay. Very, very uh, orthodox. Phil's going to be, yeah, yeah. Phil's going to be pulling that up right now. Yeah. Um, and, and then, so he's, he's pending sentencing. That's... Yeah. He was convicted. Um, he, you know, he did a little something different than I did. He, he locked the, the gates, you know, he put a, he bar locked the gates, you know, and then. Used yeah. Okay. Gear. I remember, I remember, remember that. Him? So, so that, that may actually, that may actually fit the, the actual uh, elements of the crime. Then, the I guess. Statute, right? <laughs> yeah. That actually uh, is a little Vaughan. closer. Yeah. Paul Vaughn, you know, his, he had his, he has 10 kids or whatever, but his, you know, four agents came out to his house. I have not spoken to him. Uh, Joan Andrews Bell, I, her son was at my trial and okay. uh, I spoke to her directly through that, but I really haven't had much contact. We probably should have some sort of uh, uh, a gathering, I gather, of the, of these, these folks at some point. Yeah. An alumni meeting of, of sort of a <laughs> auspicious, uh, auspicious nature. Uh, have you been following meeting? <laughs> That's it. Yes. PNG. Someone referred to me as a uh, P at, they said uh, persona, extremely non grata the other day about <laughs> being in the FBI, which is always, I thought that was kind of a nice thing. Uh, I was, I was kind of grateful for that title. There's a, uh, so there was a memo that, that uh, one of my whistleblowers brought forward. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was talking about some of the, uh, the traditional Catholics, the so-called radical traditional Catholics. I'm sure you will find yourself on an SPLC hate list at some point because that's what they do. Um, have you been tracking that at all? Have you had a, a, have you had any bandwidth to digest that? So, so it's a great question. It's where we're going next. So, so I have an interview with the uh, Judiciary Committee on February 22nd to begin process to have that uh, testify before Congress uh, and that subcommittee uh, that was in charge of uh, oversight with the federal government's out overreach. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be happening. We reached out to the former FBI head in the Eastern District where I am who is a devout Catholic who retired two years ago uh, and he's willing to cooperate and help us. Uh, I just saw um, Bill Barr uh, at an event in Orlando and he's willing to help us, former attorney general under Donald Trump, uh, head of the DOJ, right? Uh, yep. So he's willing to help us. Um, so we're moving in this direction uh, to to begin this process. That's good. Um, it, it It's funny that it's got it into the... the um... It's at least got, I, I think they they blew it like in so many ways. They tipped a hand 
what they don't realize is that there are an awful lot of Catholics. There's also a lot of just um, evangelical Christians and others who hold the same views as all Catholics do about abortion and about the homosexuality agenda that we're talking about here. And these are not foreign to to mainstream people in this country. We've just been kind of stifled in a lot of ways and people kind of keep their mouths shut. I, I think that's the legacy of the 90s for some reason. It's like everybody just tried to, to let everybody be and there was that participation trophy kind of culture. But that led to a lot of tolerance that maybe... Um, got out of hand in a way that uh, we're, we're seeing you know the backlash of it right now which is that you've got a weaponized doj willing to go after guys like you and that are willing to push the envelope about uh issues that the federal government really ought not to have any say in there was a a prosecutor i talked to the other day he said the government doesn't have any stake in the outcome of law enforcement they should only be interested in the process but i don't think it probably felt like that for you and it certainly doesn't feel like that looking from being on the outside now and looking inside again and seeing what's going on there they, they seem to really care what the outcome is sure it seems that way and um yeah no we're we're definitely um at the point of the spear right so we we see it we feel it and uh you know we're we know it's going to get worse in fact i feel like there's even more of a a target on my back uh as a result of it so you know, by the grace of God, go I, and we just we're trusting in His pr- protection and providence and and goodness, and um, you know, but we're we're trying to talk to the right people. God seems to be leading us to all the right people. I, I think our conversation tonight is is a help in that process too. We we met a couple state troopers who uh, who said that they saw the invitation that day to go out and support the FBI, and they rejected it because they said, "I'm not doing this." So we know, and we tell our children, like, "Look, you know, those state troopers had a choice that day, yep. as did every FBI agent." So um, you know. They obviously would have to deal with the consequences of that choice, but an immoral order is still an immoral order. And, um, you know, there's moral injury there when you, when you follow through on an immoral order. So whether you're in the front lines in the military or a first responder or DOJ representative, there's some tremendous amount of injury that I think took place in the hearts of good people that day as a result of watching my children scream in sheer, sheer terror. So and they're going to have to carry that around and, and answer for that on their own time. And hopefully they seek the forgiveness they need to, that they can get over it too. Uh, I'm assuming that you've already made peace with what those people are. You don't hold a, do you hold animosity or grudge or how, how do you, how do you move forward with your thoughts about yeah. these guys? It's tough for Phil and I, I'll just tell you right now, it's very difficult for Phil and I to, to let our colleagues off the hook that way. Sure. Look, uh, someone asked me that question. Do you, who, you know, are you harboring anything? I said, look, I want to go to heaven. I don't harbor anything. Like if I hold it, if I'm holding anything against somebody, I ain't getting into heaven, uh, you know, because God's, you can't bring it. You can't bring it to the Lord. So I, you know, I forgive them all. Um, I, I know they're conflicted. I know that they're, they're struggling um, to, to make a decision. They, they have the, on the one end, they have, you know, this is my job. This is my career. So I support my family. And now that's at a crossroads with the life of another human being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that I, I get it. I get it. I, I would not want to be in their shoes. However, if you put me in that position, if I was given an immoral order, um, we would ask my son this question. And he said, would you expect your dad not to follow it? And he said, absolutely. So it comes back to integrity. And, and yep. each man has to have and woman has to have because there were plenty of women there that day uh, have sure. the integrity that says, no, this is this is a bridge too far. I can I cannot do this. That's it. No, I think that's the that's the call to action for all of our law enforcement, for our military to, to like I said, find that line in the sand. You no know, word is um, people always ask me, you know, what can I do to help? 
It's like, help yourself, <laughs> help yourself because otherwise you'll be ashamed. There's so many people that backpedal beyond things and have done things that they are ashamed of doing because they didn't prepare beforehand. There's a, uh, a buddy of mine who lives up in Long Island and uh, you know, he's a classic like Long Island tough guy, but he became a, a fitness dude. And one of the things that he always tells me is prepare or repair. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about your, your car or your diet or your health or your spiritual health. All right. of those things are, are you You really just have two options. You can either prepare or you're going to be working backwards afterwards and trying right. to, uh, to repair. Um, I'm very glad that you were prepared on that day that you were, that you were tested. I'm, I'm glad you stood up as a, as a dad that did the right thing. And I'm glad you had the restraint that you did. Um, I'm going to, uh, let Phil kind of do a couple of quick readouts on it that he was going to give us out, but thank you so much for sharing your story in a long form. I'm more educated on it before we do that. Um, and we'll put this in the show notes, tell people how they can follow you, support you, the, how they can find your seminars. If they're men that are, uh, that are curious about the things you've been talking about, kind of give us a little, little pitch there. Yeah, thanks again, Kyle and Phil. I appreciate it. Uh, just go to thekingsmen.org and they can link to everything I was talking about today as far as the retreats and the and the men's groups, thekingsmen.org. And do you guys have a social media presence on any of the uh, the big yeah, platforms? There's Twitter. There's, they can click on all that stuff when they get onto the website, but there's a Twitter and some social media there. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So that'll be in the show notes, folks. You can click down through it. Thekingsmen.org, not to be confused with the movie that had uh, whatever those <laughs> those goofy young guys pretending to be spies. Uh, Phil, do you want to read us out with any uh, interesting information? Yeah, sure. So again, thanks to everybody who's given to the Give, Send, Go to help support the whistleblowers, the suspendables over here on the Kyle Serafin Show. We had two nice ones uh, recently come in. One from Rod, God bless you. Thank you for your patriotism. And then another one from anonymous donor, God bless you and your efforts to bring sanity to our American constitutional Republic. Also still taking five-star reviews. Thanks to everybody who's given us a five-star review. It helps the Kyle Serafin show move up the charts like this one from rapid fire wisdom. Unlike other podcasters who try to fill an hour by repeating themselves and being drama queens, Kyle constantly has something valuable and interesting to say. His rapid speech, rapid speech rather, shows there's no emptiness in that hair-covered computer. Always a great listen. And finally, just a reminder to everybody that our buddy Steve Friend's book is still out there for pre-sale, True Blue. Look for it on Amazon, True Blue by Steve Friend. And uh, number five, Kyle, on the Amazon yes, in the, in the already. Yeah, on the government uh, corruption list. Yeah, and his thing. Mark, thank you so much for spending time with us after Super Bowl Sunday. I didn't watch the game, but I imagine uh, we saw the Chiefs win. So, <laughs> who you were, yeah, you guys on the other side. I was. Uh, my, I have a strange connection to Phil, uh, to uh, Kansas City, uh, not a strong one, but my dad actually worked there for a number of years for the uh, for the Royals. So I figured of the two, I got no connection to Philly at all. But I'm sorry, it's slow, it's they right. won't be flipping over. They won't be flipping over uh, extra cars, or maybe they will. Maybe that's what they do when they lose too. Yeah, I saw that's some uh, some some pregame shenanigans. Yeah, anything that's that close looks good. Uh, thanks so much for spending your evening with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you the best of luck. And I'm going to be looking into the Kingsman.org, especially when you guys are out here in Arizona. That Great. sounds like a interesting yeah. thing to, to catch up with. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. God bless you guys. All right. Yeah. God bless you too. Thanks so much. And congratulations on your victory in court. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and truth at Kyle Serafin.